Good morning. Let's go ahead and begin. I'm Alex Fogelman, uh, filling in for Father Lee today. Um, And we'll be continuing on on the sacraments, um, the sacrament of baptism. Uh, More on that, which he did a little bit last week, and then potentially starting on the sacrament of the Eucharist. But let's stand and pray as we begin. O God, who wonderfully created and yet more wonderfully restored the dignity of human nature, grant that we may share the divine life of him who humbled himself to share our humanity, your Son, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Please be seated. So last week was just an awesome way to talk about baptism, and I'm a bit biased because my son was one of the ones being baptized. Um, But that was enough, I think, of a catechesis on uh, baptism. Um, But I do want to to reiterate something about uh, the nature of sacraments in general, Uh, And then talk, we can talk, if there's more questions on the sacrament of baptism in particular, we can talk about that and then um, keep moving onward. But the, one of the things to say about baptism, which we started last week, and this will be repeated throughout the questions in the catechism on baptism, is that there's two elements to a sacrament. Uh, What are we? We'll, we'll, We'll... We'll want to learn this definition of sacrament. So what is the definition of a sacrament? Yes. We've got outward, visible, sign, uh, and then inward, spiritual grace. So we'll want to keep those two things in mind. And one of the things that we'll be returning to is how those two things are related. How is the outward visible sign related to the inward spiritual grace or reality? So we've got these, these two things, sign and reality. And one of the things that we'll, we'll do as we continue talking about the nature of, of sacraments and particular sacraments is how are these two related? How is the sign related to the reality? Uh, and this is a, a particularly um, it, difficult thing for us to, to, grap, uh, to, to grapple with um, because we've lost how to, how to understand how the church uh, traditionally has understood the relationship between these two things. In modernity, we tend to err uh, on one of two ways. On the one hand... We want to separate the sign and the reality. So the sign, the visible thing, is completely distinct, separate from the reality to which it points. So there's water in the sacrament of baptism, and in this separatist view, or sometimes called a memorialist view, the sign is just a thing that points to Something else, something extrinsically related, separation of sign and 
reality. So the sign is the water, and the reality is this uh, grace, transforming grace uh, in the sacrament of baptism. And in this, one of the, one of the ways we err is by, comp- is by separating those two. The other way we tend to err, the other side of the ditch, is to collapse the two. To say that the sign just is the reality to which it points. So the water, per se, does the renewal, regeneration of baptism. So we'll, we'll see uh, in, in modernity, because we've lost this more sacramental view of creation in general, we've no longer, no longer intuitively know how to understand visible things in the world as sacramentally related to divine heavenly realities. Because we've lost this understanding of the world, we have a harder time thinking about particular sacraments in general. Um, and we can say, we want to uh, return to this, um, but this is one of the things that, um, one of the things that I think uh, Father Lee and the Christchurch community more generally have sought to do really well is to hold together the, both the, um, the significance of the sign itself, the water, the sacrament, um, and the reality to which it points, the transforming grace of God, but without collapsing the two. Um, and this is one of the, the things, this is so important because it undergirds most everything we do, the liturgical life of our church, what we do in singing and in preaching and receiving the Eucharist and, and baptizing, um, understanding this view of reality, understanding this entire sort of ontology, if you will, is the basis for understanding a lot of the impulses and the intuitions of Christ Church, if that makes sense. Questions on that? Sacrament, sign and reality, these sorts of things. I think this will become come clearer as as we go along and we and we move through these, but um, it'll it'll be something we'll we'll want to return to. So uh, we, I think, you left off last week talking about the sacraments, question 104, the sacraments of the gospel. Does that sound right? Maybe? Yeah. Let's pick up uh, with question 105. Uh, what is the outward invisible sign in baptism? The outward invisible sign is water in which candidates are baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit the name of the triune God to whom the candidate is being committed. Okay, the outward invisible sign is water in which candidates are baptized. So why water? Why water? Is this just a, yeah. Cleansing, yeah, water cleans things, yep. What was what Christ said to do? Always a good thing to do. Just do what Christ said to do. All right. Anything else? Birth. Birth. Ah, there's a good one. How so? How does water? Yes. Yes. Uh, 
look out for that, guys, coming up on the... <laughs> uh, yes, so, so birth. Um, we also think of the creation, the original creation. Uh, the spirit hovers over the waters, and that's giving birth to creation itself. So there's, there's images of um, cleansing, uh, and that's typically what baptism would have referred to, or um, uh, Jewish practices of baptism would often be related to cleansing, and also having to do with processes of initiation. So cleansing, initiation, um, and with the things Jesus says, like... Um, one cannot see the kingdom of heaven without being washed in the, this water uh, and spirit, uh, then Christians start to develop a, a range of metaphors for, for how water does what it does in the sacrament of baptism. So there's, a, there's just a, a number of scriptural images and just following the command to baptize uh, <laughs> in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. Uh, that is that's why, why water is used, why water in particular is the outward and visible sign in baptism. So if that's the outward and visible sign, let's go to the next question, 106. What is the inward and spiritual grace set forth in baptism? The inward and spiritual grace set forth is a death to sin and a new birth to righteousness through union with Christ in his death and resurrection. I am born a sinner by nature, separated from God, but in baptism rightly received, I am made God's child by grace through faith in Christ. So we have a number of things going on. We can just kind of walk, walk through these. Inward and spiritual grace is death to sin and new birth to righteousness. So that's what we talked about a bit. Water uh, symbolizes new birth, uh, but also, in this case, a death to sin. There's a death and new birth through union with Christ in his death and resurrection. And this, um, this especially the, the image of baptism as dying and rising, um, particularly picks up on the language of Paul in the letter to the Romans. Um, is it Romans 6? Romans 6, Paul writes, What shall we say? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? So how have we died to sin? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his." So there's this logic going on here that Christ has died and risen. That's the, the fundamental reality at really the center of the universe. Christ has died and risen. But what does that have to do with you? How are you 
brought into the, what what difference does that make to your life sure it changes it changes the world it changes the sort of fundamental structure of the world um, but Gerhard how do you join with Christ's death and resurrection Paul's saying here that that uh, Christ really died and really rose again. And in baptism, we also die and rise with Christ. Do we die in the same way that Christ did? Not quite. But is it less of a death? Are the, are the effects any less for that? No. We don't die in the same way that Christ did. Christ is the unique sacrifice, the unique death. And yet, Paul is saying, the effects, the benefit, the grace is the same. You do, you do die, and you do live a new life in Christ. So this is part of that sacramental mystery, how the, the visible outward sign relates to this inward spiritual grace. There is a, a sacrament of death and resurrection, of baptism. That's the sign. And it's intrinsically related to the benefits we receive of we also die and rise with Christ. And that has real ontological absolute sort of uh, difference for who we are as people. It changes our, our, um, our identity in that, in that deep sort of way. Um, so the, the effects, the, the death and resurrection that, that we receive in baptism are, are real, uh, right? They're not just, oh, that was a, uh, a nice little ceremony we had and uh, a pleasant little exercise we do. No, uh, there's, there's death and resurrection there. There's death to the old person and uh, an entrance into a new kind of life. So there's, there's death and resurrection. Um, what else do we say? I'm born, because we're born a sinner by nature, separated from God, but in baptism rightly received, I made a God's child by grace through faith in Christ. So rightly received, that's a nice little add-on. Rightly received basically just means with water and in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, right? That's the uh, necessary conditions for rightly receiving uh, baptism. So baptism rightly received, and uh, so there needs to be, uh, and I guess the other things we need to say about is, is that um, an intention on the part of the uh, one being received to, to receive that baptism with, uh, with faith. So, uh, questions on that. Inward and spiritual grace. Right, so, yeah, that's a, that's a, um, a good way to say that. You're, you, wanna, you want to account for how the, the baptized infant who cannot make a profession on his own or her own 
um, is also able to have to have a proper profession of faith, right? And so you want to. That's what, one of the ways that confirmation is uh, related to to baptism. Um, yes, absolutely. Uh, but we also want to also want to say that um, the well, well, we'll come to infant baptism um, in just a second. Um, but it's also to say that the sort of parents speaking on behalf of the, of the child, that's another way in which um, what we tend to separate as the profession of the, the child, the baptizand, and the profession of the parent um, are, are not actually fundamentally distinct. So the parent's um, profession on behalf of the child is a sort of real profession for the child. And that's, that's wrapped up into their um, commitments to raise the child uh, well, to, um, to train them up and catechize them and, and these sorts of things. Yeah, I'm thinking even receive, they don't receive baptism rightly within themselves. Oh, right. So they are sort of have, have the wrong intention or the faulty, a faulty sort of approach to baptism or, yeah, or something like that. Maybe Yeah, so that, that, that's, good. that's good to say. The, um, uh, one approaches, uh, well, that goes actually to the next question. What, why don't we do that? Question 107, what is required of you when you come to be baptized? Repentance, in which I turn away from sin, and faith, in which I turn to Jesus Christ as my Savior and Lord, and embrace the promises that God makes to me in this sacrament. So this, this gets to the, to the part of uh, maybe a, a further understanding of rightly received, in addition to the proper sort of liturgical requirements for that. What's required on the, on the part of the person being baptized is repentance and faith. Repentance meaning a turning away, right? That's why we stand up here and cast it, we face uh, liturgical West, uh, <laughs> um, and we r- renounce the the demonic forces, right? So there's a turning and renunciation, and then there's a literal turning towards the east, towards the the rising of the sun, uh, and and that's our embrace of Christ. So there's two parts to uh, to this process: turning away and a turning to. And an embrace, and so this this is maybe maybe part of what it means. What uh, what the question is about? What is it about the person who's being baptized that what they need to do in order for baptism to be rightly received? And that's that's really I would say the the, the fundamental part of what needs to be done on the on the part of the, the person is that they need to repent and embrace. Right. Yes. That's right. And this, this gets us again to the, um, the relationship between sign and reality, right? Sign and grace. What Simon the Magician does is try to say, oh, I, can, I see what this sign is doing. These people are baptizing and it's doing all sorts of great things. So... 
Simon the Magician attempts to just try to grasp the sign and say, look what I can do now. And then he's like, oh, it doesn't work that way. So what, what Peter's saying is that um, baptism is not just, not just the sign by itself, it's the sign and the reality, the repentance and um, embrace, uh, turning in faith, repentance and faith uh, t- uh, that accompanies the sign that, that makes baptism the uh, uniquely transformative thing that it is. Yeah. Yes, great question. And, and this gets part of the, to the question about infant baptism as well. Um, because how can an infant have proper understanding about what they receive? The same... Um, Uh, the same thing would, would uh, hold for people who don't have the same sort of mental capacities, right? Uh, people with different mentor, mental uh, abilities. How can they be said to properly be baptized if they don't really understand uh, what's going on? Um, so there's a, a number of things to say about this. Um, one is that uh, I'm not sure you and I uh, fully know what's going on in baptism, right? As um, uh, what's happening there is is beyond our comprehension. As much as we would say, I've got a good understanding of of what Scripture teaches and the creeds, and um, and a full under you know as full as I can an understanding of my own intention about what I'm doing here. Um, if you take the case of a sort of um, adult baptism, um, the person even in that case is saying, I, I understand what I'm doing. I'm making a um, profession of faith. Uh, I, I know what I'm leaving behind. I'm, I know what I'm embracing. Um, even in that sort of case, I still think that person, because of just the the deep mystery of the human heart, that sort of, even in that case, um, I think the person could still look back and say, oh, I have no, no idea what I was doing. This is like what people say about marriage, right? Like, I know, no, nobody ever knows what they're doing when they get married, right? But they do so with a sort of, uh, you know, properly formed, <laughs> uh, you know, intention about what they're doing. And that's part of the... Um, legality of marriage is that it can't be a sort of coerced or um, forced arrangement. Uh, it's a similar case in, in baptism. Uh, yes, you want to have some clear, intended, well-formed ideas about what you're doing in this process, but no one's ever, you're going to look back, you're, you'll look back like, uh, uh, and just say, I had no idea what I was doing. Um, so th- there's partially that. There's partially um, the other thing um, to say about that. Um, is that it gets to these questions, and I think Father Lee talked a, a little bit about this last week, but the question about uh, sort of free will, right? Like if, um, how can it be a valid baptism if it's, if, if the person sort of, free will if they, don't, if they don't freely choose it, right? 
Um, and again, one of, the, one of the ways to think about this is that uh, it's always God's grace that proceeds and leads one to baptism, to faith, to repentance. There's always God's grace uh, leading, uh, guiding, and um, drawing one in to, uh, to faith. Um, so the, the ability for even adults to, to make a profession, you know, a confident profession of faith is an act of grace, the same grace that's there in the sacrament. So whether the, um, in, in one case, one way you think about it is that whether it comes um, whether the sacrament of baptism comes before that in the case of an infant baptism or in the case where it comes, where the sacrament of baptism comes after this, um, uh, you know, mental conversion, spiritual conversion, whether the sacrament of baptism comes before or after that, in both cases you have God's grace that is not restricting the person's freedom but enabling the person's freedom. God's grace is what opens up um, a person's ability to, to freely choose. Um, so again, it's very, it's very difficult the, for our culture to think about um, this understanding of baptism as a, a real a sacrament, a real means of grace that the sacrament of, of baptism can, can do, can it transform, can enact the thing that it's claiming to do um, because we've been sort of habituated to think, well, my free will is the sort of most important thing. My ability to choose is the sort of core aspect of my identity. Uh, so the way in which we've come to see the human person as, as tied to their ability to choose um, then we, we have a harder time thinking about the sacrament of baptism as, as a means of grace. Does that make, that make some sense? Okay, let's, let's move on. 108. This, and this kind of follows up on the question. Well, if, if what is required is repentance and faith, then, question 108, why is it appropriate to baptize infants? Because it is a sign of God's promise that they are embraced in the covenant community of Christ's church, those who in faith and repentance present infants to be baptized, vow to raise them in the knowledge and fear of the Lord with the expectation that they will one day profess full Christian faith as their own. And this is one of the things Michael was alluding to earlier is that um, one baptizes infants in the expectation, hope, and um, actually doing things towards that child growing up and making a profession of their own, which it most typically happens in the sacrament of confirmation. So, um, but what is, uh, I think, uh, helpful to see here is that uh, baptism as a sign of God's promise so there's this language of sign uh, that God has promised to make them a part of the covenant community, right? And this is the, this is the church. 
Christ's body. So what the baptism of infants does is bring those children into the life of the community. It makes them um, actual citizens of God's kingdom and not just maybe one day citizens, but you don't actually belong here. Um, This, in fact, has a lot of ramifications for how we think about children in the church, uh, children in worship, uh, what we think children are. Um, Children aren't just, um, you know, once you grow up and get smart, then maybe you can join our community, right? Uh, What it's saying is that children are, when baptized, full members of the community, They're not just partial members or halfway there or um, something like that. They're not sort of halfway, halfway citizens. So there's the other one thing that's going on here too is that there's a very different understanding of the nature of the church that than we're we're accustomed to. We tend to think of the church and in American culture as a as a voluntary society. It's a sort of uh, extra club thing that you join, uh, that you all choose to be here, and uh, you, you all want that. Well, the, the way that the Bible talks about the church is that it's a, um, it uses more political language. Uh, it's a kingdom, a city, a people, this sort, of, this sort of language. It's not like the Rotary Club, right? It's not like, uh, you know, something that you that you all decide, oh, well, we all have this thing in common. We always like, you know, we like chess, so we join the chess club. And, oh, we like Jesus, so we join the Jesus club. Now, this, what, what the proclamation of the gospel is, is that there is a radically new world order, right? There is a new king uh, in charge, and he is forming not just a voluntary society, but a new people, right? A new humanity. And the... The roots of this go, go way back to Adam. He's, it's a new people. Uh, and so in that, in, an, in any society, in any people, there are all kinds of people, right? Uh, children included. Uh, so it, it gets to this, if you have this different understanding of what the church is and what the proclamation of the gospel entails, then you begin to think differently about how you initiate children into that society. The, the, the most obvious sort of um, typological relation is the way circumcision functioned in, in Israel, right? Um, you circumcised male children on the eighth day. They didn't consciously choose that. That was just the people they were born into. That was the, that was the way that worked. Uh, so there's, there's similarities and differences with that understanding of the way in which people are initiated, brought into the, the community. Um, but in this case, the, uh, the, the parallel is that um, children are brought into, initiated into this covenant community as a sign of God's promise. Uh, and again, the, the necessary thing here is that the parents' part, they come with repentance and faith and they stand sort of on behalf of the child 
um, and they vow to, to make these promises and to raise them in the knowledge and fear of the Lord and so on. They're part of the original creation. Right. So yeah, yeah. Right. The natural world, yeah. This sort of, yeah. And the, like, the world of darkness. Right. The, the family as a structure is the world of darkness and only the adults world. That's right. Yeah, that's, a, that's another a, uh, excellent point. Like, there's a, there's a sense in which you think about what's different between the new order and the old order and uh, things, that are, things that are left behind are things like sin and darkness and, um, and evil. And one of the, and th- the things that are uh, brought into this uh, are certainly the orientations of, of the family. Uh, and, of course, there's transformations in that too, right? Jesus calls us uh, to... He does uh, challenge our notions of, of the family um, in, in making the church the sort of the new family. Uh, but within that, he doesn't... Um, Dis, you know, disperse with families, right, on, on a sort of natural order. Uh, so, yeah, so that's one thing that's being, being brought in here. Yeah. What, what, what else about infant baptism? I know there's some, there's some closet Baptists in here that are just like, I don't know about this. Okay, go. Okay. What's the, what's the objection? Adults making a so so go go a step further. What's 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 not making sense? Because you're you're speaking for many people. You're yeah yeah. Even I mean, most American Christians are Baptist on this regard. I mean, even uh, I grew up in a Methodist church, and which typically baptizes infants. And uh, my parents were like, no. <laughs> so I was baptized as a teenager. Uh, so, this, so this is difficult. And, but but if, I, if I'm trying to draw out what you're, what you're saying here, and the challenge is that an infant can't make a profession, what? On his own or her own. This, yeah, this, uh, this to me seems the rub. I mean, if someone else can name a, a better way to say it, my, my sense is the, the, main, the main challenge in understanding infant baptism is that a child can't make, he can't re- repent and, um, and have faith on, again, on their own. Yes. Without sin, had nothing to repent of. Well, to be clear, we, that we'll, we'll, people here especially will immerse a baby. I don't know if you know about that, but they'll, they'll immerse a baby. Um, that's, that's the immersion, <laughs> immersion isn't, the, isn't, I don't think, the, the challenge. The, the challenge is, um, does, can, can you have a baptism, legitimate baptism, without first having the person who's being baptized stand up and say, I repent of my sins, I believe in Jesus Christ, now I want to be baptized, right? This is the, 
if we can put the finest point on it. It emerges at least by, or the sort of clearest evidence is about 200 AD. There's the, the sort of clearest evidence of infant baptism. And it does happen because um, people are bringing, babies are uh, sort of on the brink of death. They baptize babies. Um, and then they say, well, if we baptize babies, then it must be doing something. Uh, and the logic is, this is actually, this is one of the reasons how the doctrine of original sin gets um, articulated, is because if, uh, if baptism, if you baptize a child and they haven't had time to commit any known sins, then baptism must cleanse them of something, therefore it must cleanse them of original sin. And this, in turn, reinforces the idea of of infant baptism is that um, children are born into this not just um, a habituation to sin, a sort of community of sinners. They are they participate, they share in in Adam's sin itself. Um, but then there's this there is this articulation that well, when we baptize infants, something is happening that actually does something to the child. That um, the, the, the older language for this is that the sacrament um, perform, is, is a means of grace. So it's um, through this sign, God's grace is being poured out, being given uh, to the child as well as to the adult. Uh, when, some, when an adult is baptized, when they make a profession of faith and then are baptized, Right? There's still the understanding that baptism works as, as a means of grace, as a, as a channel of God's grace in which God has said, I will be here, I will, I will pour out my grace in this way, in this setting. Um, so in, in either case, though, what you have is... God's graceful choosing of this person. The, uh, God, is, God is working in the person's life, whether they make a profession of faith before or after uh, baptism, the sacrament, whether the profession comes before or after, um, what you have in the sacrament is God's means of grace. So one of the things that this uh, one of the things that this challenges is our understanding of the the, the, the there's a kind of semi-Pelagian understanding I think in in the in the idea that you can't be baptized until you make this um, adult profession of faith, and that is it assumes this this understanding that. Um, I choose to become a Christian first. That's what, it's something that I do apart from God's grace. Now I want to receive grace. So it requires this sort of, I make my own decision 
And now once I've made my own decision, now bring on the grace. Whereas I think in a more uh, better understanding of grace is that God's grace is what's bringing about conversion, repentance, and faith, and therefore whether that comes before or after the baptism, you have God's, you have a means of grace here. Um, Good. There's a lot lot more that needs to be said about that, but we're out of time, and uh, we'll see you next time.